Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Nomad Cloud. Our official partner is Global Rescue. Listen, traditional insurance won't rescue you and a medical evacuation can cost up to $300,000. The cost to Global Rescue members, just the price of the membership, which starts as low as $139. You see friends, Global Rescue memberships provide peace of mind with travel services designed for unexpected medical and security emergencies whether you're a digital nomad, expat, or family. Listen, do you have a plan in case of emergencies? If not, we recommend that you tune in to Global Rescue. And folks, I'm here with my son, if you're watching this on video or on audio, and the reason that I'm so excited about this partnership with Global Rescue is we are in safe hands. No matter where we are in the world, you know, if civil unrest breaks out, if some sort of goodness me, if I broke an ankle or something crazy and I needed to be airlifted to uh, medical uh, services to get surgery or whatever it may be, Global Rescue will literally send rangers. They will literally send the national police. They'll literally send whoever is there that's going to secure you and your family immediately. They don't make any extra questions. They don't ask you to fill paperwork. They don't do any nonsense. You don't pay for the services of being um, taken from um, this emergency situation to safety. They just do it. And that was one of the biggest reasons that I decided to partner with them for my uh, podcast and, and a lot of the things I'll be working on moving forward, even in a future event that we're working on right now. Um, and, you know, I just want to let you all know that this is the most important thing, person, project. It is my son. And I know anyone who is in either in a serious relationship with their partner or they have a kid, you want to protect yourself because that's all that matters. So if you are already on another insurance um, you know, company, you can still gl get Global Rescue. And it's very affordable to protect yourself when you go on these slightly higher risk trips. If you're going to be mountain climbing, if you're going to be in places in Southeast Asia where health-wise it's a little bit more risky, I would sign up for a Global Rescue membership every single time. I will not take the risk. So with that being said, I'm excited to announce Global Rescue as our official podcast partner moving forward. And let's get into uh, this week's podcast. Let's go. I am with Andreas Wilgertis. He is a nomad father, thought leader in the digital nomad movement. He sold his first business at the age of 20 working out of a garage, and he successfully built what would become part of Orange, the telecommunications company, for those who don't know. He was one of the seven winners of the European Award Elite of the Future, uh, and the nominators, by the way, who he was competing against, including BMW, Deutsche Bank, and many others. Andreas, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Well, the first thing I want to start with is this uh, quote that I've heard you mention, or at least we speak about a lot since we be, we're both fathers, is that the the nomadic um, family or family is the foundation of the nomadic movement. What did you mean by that? Um, family is uh, the foundation of humanity. Mm. We just We just have forgotten about it. And uh, we have deprioritized the subject and uh, we have disempowered families over the last 200 years. So that is the core. So uh, since it is a foundation of humanity and uh, since the digital normative and remote work movement is at the, at the leading edge of transformation at this stage, being empowered by telecommunication and being empowered by people who are not anymore limiting their mindset in their life 
to existing uh, man-made boundaries. Uh, so this is where the majority of the current change takes place with actually creating new life-centric models. So the simple answer is the family is the foundation of humanity. And obviously that makes it the foundation as well as a movement. Amazing. Yeah, and I think for me, as as I've become recently a father, um, I, I I get it now. I think before I was like, why is he always talking about families? Why is he always talking about traveling? And 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 I realized it's all part of that that freedom that we have in in you know this this digital nomad uh, movement where. Mm-hmm. You get to determine, you know, where your kids go to school, whether they go to school, how you educate them. And I know foundationally freedom is what we we have in common, all of us in the movement. And so uh, I can see where you're coming from with that. Now, I want to switch gears and I want to just jump into your background just so we have a, a framework as well. Um, mm-hmm. You're referred to as the, the first nomad. <laughs> and so... Could you tell a little bit of people where that came from? Why people were saying that? I know that uh, you were a crucial part of the kind of this telecommunications in, uh, in in Germany and around the world. But I want people to see where you started. So take us back to when you were 20 years old, when you're working in the garage. It reminds me of kind of the Steve Jobs story, you know, where the uh, the guys that started the garage and they built this kind of big company. But I want to hear it from your words. What was it like back then? Set the stage, the year, the 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 the, the political climate, and how were you able to do this at age twenty? Because I do think that is a remarkable story that gets lost in a lot of your uh, interviews. I want to I want Andreas to take us back to twenty year old Andreas and put us into the the chair he's sitting in. What is his thoughts? What is he going through? What is the world like at the time? Um. Let's answer this twofold. Uh, you asked, why do people call me this? Uh, best is to ask the people. Um, I was told they make probably reference to the fact that I have one of the first digital mobile communication phone numbers, which comes, uh, which come from the early days of GSM. So when the first GSM networks were switched on, I already had a number which came from the analog side, which was just transferred. So I was born by coincidence in the city which was the uh, test laboratory of Deutsche Telekom. And Deutsche Telekom and France Telekom were the core forces behind the creation of the GSM standard. So everything was, which was behind a borderless telecommunication mobile solution uh, was tested and uh, evolved in that neighborhood. And so this was just pure coincidence how life creates life models. Um, I think the garage is nothing else than the blueprint which most people use because instead of parking a car, if it's not humid, you can actually operate and work from there. Um, so mm-hmm. that is nothing unusual. Um, my case started earlier, so because I, I always enjoyed uh, learning and exploring new things. And I remember that my mobility radius changed dramatically when I discovered the public bus system. So, and since I'm the youngest of eight, uh, my parents were not really any, any, any more focused on me so I was able to do things very early in a city called Münster, which is kind of, if you look at it from a global perspective, super safe and nothing mm-hmm. dramatic really happens. And so I was able to be on a bus when I was really young, below 10, uh, exploring things. And I was on a bicycle then uh, distributing the medication for to, to older people who couldn't, who, who had movement problems. So the pharmacy would give me all the little bags with a name and address and a phone number. And then I was supposed to <laughs> cycle them around. So I enjoyed the uh, the customer experiences, the mobility, and all which came with that. 
And I remember that I crossed the border to the Netherlands, which was very close to my hometown. And I saw, wow, I saw all these beautiful people with different skin colors and all these different smells and tastes and all this, this Dutch colonial flavors, which are represented in the farmer's market. So in Münster, everything is kind of boringly white. Yeah, or variation mm -hmm. of pink, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you cross the border, it's really exciting. You have all these beautiful chocolate and variations. And, and <laughs> I, was, I was totally fascinated. I had no idea why, what is, or where the, what the history is, but then I checked out what the history is. Mm -hmm. Why do they hang out kind of a few kilometers across the border and why don't they hang out in Münster? And so mm -hmm. I always love to learn about it. Yeah, and so with hindsight, I was always uh, excited how mobility boosts my life. I got my first answering machine with a remote control, which made me really mobile from a communication <laughs> perspective. Um, yes, we, when I was a teenager, because I could afford it, and I had my own phone line because my dad was was upset that I would block the phone so often, and uh, so <laughs> that was just a natural pass. And then when I when I yeah. saw what happened, uh, I got a very early analog mobile phone because it helped me to be better in what I was doing at the time. And I was trained in financial services, so I would go, uh, I would be sent out seeing clients. And if you see clients, and you have a car phone, which was the first experience with an actual uh, mobile one-to-one uh, -one communication device, uh, you are so much more. First of all, reachable, you can call them and you can just pop by and call them. And so instead of hanging out in a phone box, I realized having a car phone is a great feature. So it improves my life and it improves my efficiency. So this all was natural for me. I never understood why, or being in this trained financial services where you spend 80% of your time with clients, as the idea of being stuck in an office doesn't never really came up. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think. The, what people are discounting and they don't realize huh? in this day and age is that that mobility is is what allows us and that that mobility existed way before Wi-Fi and, yes. you know, Starbucks. And so I think it's yes. super important for people to understand that this and also maybe you can speak on the historic perspective, because we're not talking about just, you know, in the 2000s when everybody's arriving in Bali or Chiang Mai. We're talking about some of the first people, uh, like you said, back then, like yourself, because you had a self, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, car phone? <laughs> I don't even know. I know what it is because I've seen it in movies. <laughs> they, they called it originally car phone, and, and, but there, there yeah. were some smart people in this industry already. There's one guy called yeah. Daniel Kranzler. He reached out the other day. He's now in Paris. Um, but mm -hmm. I found him at a, in a CTIA. It was called the Cellular Telecommunication Industry Association event, which was in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And he had a yeah. system created where in analog telephony, you would call the number and this number always finds you because he created a computer solution oh. where this number would try to reach you on a pager. If you don't ask an answer on a pager, mm -hmm. it, it, it's based on the pre-programming, which the numbers you give to the system, it tries to reach you at home. It tries to reach you in the office. It tries to reach you on any of the numbers. So very clever one number personal solution and then you could pick up, let's say you are um, at your mm -hmm. at your home or you're at your, on your, in your car, you can then listen to it and there's somebody says, hey, I'm Olomide, I try to talk to you. And then you can decide, yeah, put the call through or you don't, or just, you know what, I will call mm -hmm. you back, leave a message. So you had a very clever system called yeah. Access Line at the time. It was too early because the mobile operators kind mm -hmm. of didn't get it. And but but he was a you he was one of the early leaders of creating a solution extremely customer centric, um, mm. super powerful. But you can see the telecommunication industry is mainly managed by dinosaurs, 
and um, <laughs> and this is why people like Rene, my my first business partner, and myself in our early twenties, or I was in my late teens, we were kind of. Um, yeah, we were extremely open to figure out everything. And because I really was passionate about the subject, and yeah, then we were kind of thought leaders in our early 20s, which um, was fun. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I think that's super cool. Like I, I can imagine being back then, I would love to have been one of those people with the big car phones and mm -hmm. I'm sure it set, yep. you, it set you apart. Just like you see, I think Digital Nomads now, it's, you know, before the pandemic, where people would be at the cafe working for six hours. I'm sure a lot of people looked at those people as, oh, who? what are they doing? It's very confusing. It seems weird. And so I can imagine the same the yeah. same vibes for you back then where people were thinking, what, what are these guys going, walking around the tent? They're getting on the bus. They're going to another city. The mobility confused people. And I think um, it just shows how the, the regardless of the time or the era or the, the time you're living in, if you're ahead, if you're somebody that's advancing with technology and with your life your, and your life centric, people will have questions. So uh, I think that that's super interesting for you to, to, to tell us that story. And going forward now, so how did you leave Germany or Munster? What brought you out of that, you know, jumping from the border between Germany and uh, like you said, Netherlands? Like what? What took you outside? Was it was it were you curios curiosity? What made you extend your range as a nomadic person? I'm curious to hear that. I think the answer is pretty simple. If you look at what Ken Robinson defined, uh, sadly he passed away. But if you look at what Ken Robinson defined in the number one most viewed TED talk existing, Ken Robinson said people at kindergarten age are tested 98% at genius level when it comes to problem solving and convergent thinking. So that gets destroyed to what post studies university to a 10% level. Mm. Imagine I, I was lucky. Uh, I drove the school principal nuts and uh, we came <laughs> to the conclusion that I should rather leave the school very early. So I got out of that system and I kept that creativity probably very much alive and uh, mm. the desire to figure out things. And so my radios keep extending from bus to bicycle to small motorbike to crossing the border. And uh, when uh, Rene and I set up this mobile phone company, we kept looking into what is possible. So, and uh, we never accepted the, the status quo as a situation. We put car phones into small suitcases when the German, the East, East German reunification happened because the only thing which worked was car phones. And I said, you, can, you, you cannot put a car into an office, but I can take the phone out of the car into a suitcase and put it in the office. So um, why not? Yeah, so, and you yeah. got all the answers. No, you shouldn't do this. And I said, it worked. We sold hundreds of those. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, when I explored where are the really smart people when it comes to mobile phones, I found out there's a whole bunch, as an example, in the UK at the time, but even better in Asia. So I thought the people in Hong Kong created analog mobile phone solutions where the phones work in elevators, where the phones work in tunnels, mm. yeah, where logically kind of a German engineering at the time was, oh, that's impossible. And um, if you come <laughs> from a different world, they say, okay, how do I spell impossible? Uh, it's I am possible, right? So, um, <laughs> and so, so I found out the guys in Hong Kong called um, Hutchins and Wampua, very smart people. I learned about a guy called Li Ka-Sheng, uh, who himself was a refugee coming from mainland China, but very open to, to creative people. And I reached out to them. And then uh, we said, hey, let's fly over. And so we did. And uh, when the our situation of what do we do next, how do we expand the business, how we create better solutions, 
We were in communication with companies like British Telecom or SFR in Paris and others. And I said, no, I don't want to do with those guys. They are actually boring. So I, we decided to sell a certain stake in our company and, and uh, with these guys in Hong Kong. And this was even before Orange was created. And then we were in our early 20s and we were a business partner of uh, Li Ka-shing. And uh, this was fun. I learned a lot by being there in Hong Kong, see what they did with mobile data solutions, which were very innovative at the time. So they had the Royal Hong Kong Jockey Club where you could bet uh, through a mobile device, pre-iPhone and pre-phone, <laughs> but you could bet on a mobile device on, on the horse betting results. So if you look at online gaming, huge industry by now, but this is something I saw in the early 1990s and it's fun. And uh, they create devices for uh, transport and shipping solutions like trucks of UPS, which we nowadays, obviously, they have a mobile device, early 1990s, that was kind of science fiction. But they created all of those in Hong Kong in a small market, but it's uh, whatever you can do in Hong Kong, why wouldn't you scale it to other countries? This is why I came in. And um, yeah, I was this uh, young German guy who had a lot of background on how to come up with creative solutions for mobile, especially GSM. And then I was uh, lucky that through my Hutchinson exposure and Hong Kong exposure and then Orange exposure, I was able to operate in countries like Indonesia, um, where if you're in your 20s, but you're competent and you're tall and German, you know where people listen to you. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. This, was, this was lucky. I was in Bali. We were there with analog devices, but we were part of uh, helping to, to set up the first uh, nationwide GSM license businesses, which was actually the largest GSM license in the world. Because Indonesia at mm. that time already had more than 200 yeah. million people. And uh, yeah. that made it the biggest thing. But people said, wow, Indonesia, what is that? And then I said, hey, it's a great country. But they didn't have conventional statistics. Yeah, so as an example, mm. I remember that in a board meeting. I said, conventional statistics, who needs conventional statistics? Just look at the number of BMWs sold, look at the membership numbers of golf clubs, and then you can see the actual already existing wells in a country like Indonesia. So don't wait for conventional mm. data companies to come up. Look at practical solutions. Yeah, and so um, yeah. luckily, some people listened. Well, that's phenomenal because that that serves uh, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people. Yep. So well done with that. I think it, that's that's another thing with digital nomads now. In a way, I feel like we need to know our history. You need to know who came before you. You need to understand the infrastructure. For example, Bali, as you mentioned, if mm -hmm. Andreas and other people didn't set the stage with GSM, you wouldn't be able to get on your uh, data network yes. in order to text your friend to come and meet you at sunset. And I think one of the things, every time I've spoken to you, you always look into history. And so I want to I wanna know, know why. Why is it important to look into the past for especially uh, this nomadic movement? Can you speak about, you know, the first nomads and kind of why now, and I keep going to the same theme, why now isn't different um, than before? This one theme that I think is, is something that always comes up. We're not different than back then we just have a few more tools in our hands so i'd love you to speak about that historical perspective because i do want to educate people on here about human history not uh, uh no no digital nomads or this this is a human story and i've always maintained in my podcast that i want to bring on people who are speaking about things larger than just one buzzword digital nomad it's very important it's very good for marketing and get getting attention but why should we be paying attention to human history when we talk about the digital nomad movement because this is where we come from understanding our roots understanding our foundation is core 
And you know what? Everybody driving a car is doing it. So as they normally, before they start, look into the rear mirror. So, um, but this mm -hmm. rear mirror perspective is something which we forget uh, on a daily basis. So, and I understand that history classes in school sucked. Yeah, so they're not really interesting. And uh, let me give you an example. If when I, when I was keen to understand how the contemporary art world works, I read history books about art. And in this history books, as an example, Indian Indian art history didn't exist because those history books were written by Western people. And in their logic, India doesn't have an art history. So, which is totally stupid, logically. And if you go into India, you will see the richness. So, they were actually doing many sophisticated, uh, they, they were a very sophisticated civilization where we were still kind of hanging on the tree in neighborhoods like Germany. So, if you, if you look back a few thousand years. So, to make a long story short, um, Anthony Satara was writing an article or wrote a book and uh, which was which was written about in the New York Times, and he has summarized it extremely well. Um, but we as humans have always been more well people. If we cannot walk, we get a wheelchair. We don't get a fixed chair. So we are very mobile, mm -hmm. and we have been more mobile uh, in the last thousands of years. Now telecommunication allows us to be exceptionally mobile even if we don't want to change places all the time. So, and the mix of that allows to look at the old models where all the know-how transfer happened by traveling people. How did the people in Venice learn something? Because they had people on boats who brought back knowledge and, and uh, life experiences, which were not available in Venice. Why did those centers like Venice and Florence flourish? Because they had that know-how transfer happening. So mobile people, people who are willing to learn to listen explore and share the knowledge have been the backbone of of civilization evolving mm. ever since and the idea of mm. creating fixed offices and fixed cooling solution which we nowadays can call concrete boxes we didn't have concrete <laughs> 200 years ago but when the model came up uh, it was very much around boxes but before that uh, the idea of sitting in an office uh, were, were unheard of. Yeah, so this mm. is all something which is a 200-year trial and which from today's perspective, yeah. we have to admit it didn't work too well uh, because the health level of humans uh, degraded big time and uh, it didn't improve productivity. And yes, now mm. through telecommunication, we can take it to a totally different level. So to go back, if you look at the history, you see we always shared know-how and do-how by people being mobile and sharing the knowledge. Yeah, look at Venice, look at yeah. Florence, look at, look at civilizations in general, look at the nomadic tribes. Yeah, it always happened that way. So, and this is how uh, humanity, I think, got boosted. And if you then look into telecommunication, yeah. the early form of telecommunication was probably the Gutenberg printing press. Yeah, so because this was a situation where you could write something, print it, and distribute the books mm -hmm. everywhere. It's telecommunication, communication over distances. So, and then just yeah. in an analog paper-based way. But what did the Gutenberg printing press do? It scared the leadership of the day, which was very much uh, <laughs> the church, yeah? And uh, some aristocrats, <laughs> they didn't like it too much because it empowered the people to learn how to read and to write. Wow, and reading <laughs> and writing was a very, was a skill which was only available for privileged people, which was mainly, again, people in religious structures, yeah, and aristocrats. So the, the middle class didn't exist. What did telecommunication through the mm -hmm. Gutenberg press achieve? Uh, the wealth of the people increased and actually a middle class unfolded. Yeah, mm -hmm. so digital mobile communication is just putting all of this on steroids. 
Yeah, AI yeah. is putting this on steroids. Yeah, so now you can learn the mm -hmm. most things anytime, anywhere. Yeah, wow. When you take us through that historical account, it really puts it uh -huh. into perspective. Access to information, access to uh -huh. technology democratizes opportunities yes. for people. I think that's a really, really short way to say it. But that's an interesting thing to dive into now is that I always try to think about solutions for uh, these inequities that happen around the world. It's a passion of mine to see how can we advance humans as we both agreed, like this is a human movement. This is about his historical accounts of what's happened and learning from them. What I know is, is that from what you're saying, technology can free people and allow them to be more mobile. But I want to talk about the hard topics. Passport, you know, uh, um, privilege, whatever you want to call it, the ability to travel around the world, it's still, even if you have a cell phone, even if you have uh, internet, it's still limited by these, these same governments historically and these same institutions. So I'm curious for you because you're a big thinker, how do we combat that? What are some models that we can start exploring in allowing telecommunications to free people? Because in a way, as much access you have and the equity that's happening through the internet and through technology and GSM and what, whatever, there's still the people in India and Pakistan that can't go to, um, you know, Greece. And some of them are skilled enough to work remotely. How do we solve that? <laughs> it's pretty simple. Um, don't forget, 25 years ago, um, if, you take a, if you take a phone from New York to Miami, you're not allowed to make a phone call in Miami because they don't trust you. They would say, who are you? Mm. Uh, we can, you cannot use a network. It doesn't work. So um, you had to get a second phone in Miami to actually make phone calls. We changed all of that through GSM and the uh, SIM card-based model, eSIM, electronic or physical SIM, doesn't really matter. But the concept mm. of trust, which was created through GSM and which works in 190 plus countries, is the first time that I think on this planet we found a solution which crosses borders, which gives instant access, and which gives instant transparency. So the the IoT factors I call it integrity of transparency, uh, which GSM created was never existed before. So um, take your phone, you go into a country, and you can take a phone from India, and you go to Frankfurt, and uh, if it's a GSM-based phone, they can check pretty much real time in a question of seconds and they check with the home location register in india is this person paying his bills is he on a postpaid plan up to which limit and boof you are plugged in the frankfurt networks so your phone calls reach you you can make phone calls you can use mobile data etc so um we will we will be able as humans to create a similar solution for human identities for everybody who wants to operate with openness and transparency, that model which we have with SIM cards and with GSM can be transferred. Yeah. So if you come from India right now, if you have a diplomatic passport, then none of the limitations exist. Yeah. So we already have yeah. solutions. We just call them diplomatic passports. Yeah. If you mm. have an American Express Centurion card, yeah, let's say Black American Express, you can go anywhere in the world and they will roll out a red carpet, independent mm -hmm. of your passport. So if you look at Diplomatic passports, if you look at the American Express Centurion card, we already have solutions which work cross-border and which gives you instant credibility and instant access. So they exist. We just have to scale them on a wider model. And then, yes, people who are open to share 
their background and who share that they have been traveling, they do not want to live permanently in Frankfurt, they have their own financial independence, they have traveled to multiple countries and they're actually great citizens to have around, they will not go through the conventional process, which often is just a nightmare. So, and then we create this artificial uh, burdens that you have to travel across India to get a visa and then apply for a Schengen visa and they make you uh, kiss the floor 15 times before you're even allowed to enter the embassy and all this stuff. So it's ridiculous, as we all know. Yeah. So, yeah. and if you're if you're uh, a dolphin from India, you can swim anywhere into international waters <laughs> and go anywhere else. So we don't care. So this artificially or human designed limitation model is all based on fear and paranoia. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have mm -hmm. right now examples on the planet which are working well, like the GSM model. Uh, which work well, like diplomatic passports or like the American Express Centurion card, um, they exist. We just have to scale them and then do it slowly because the most countries operate based on fear. But you can see that what we did, we already we already drilled small tin, small holes into it. Yeah, the current, not perfect, but existing remote work visa solutions or digital nomad visa solutions are the first attempt to drill small holes into those walls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that's what I was transitioning into. I wanted to know where are places around the world that you feel are progressive or that are, I don't even like the word progressive, but that are, 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 vision, are visionaries to actually make a change. Um, are there certain countries that you think are doing a good job or that, you know, their, their local governments or, you know, uh, you know, the legal kind of structure allows for this so that we can kind of understand where, where to head? Um, is there sort of a path for that in different, in, uh, in specific countries that you've been to or that you've experienced? Um, I still have to find the real visionary uh, politician in the government who wants to make exceptional things happen. The concept of, of serving your current voters, the majority of them do not have yeah. the vision. It is very difficult. Look at Helmut Kohl, who passed mm -hmm. away. Um, he actually stated many facts about the German reunification. If he would have stated the truth at the time, people in West Germany would have gone on the barricades and say, we are not going for a re reunification. So he stated mm -hmm. certain things, which from today's perspective, you might say that might have not been 100% accurate. Yeah, but he was mm -hmm. totally convinced it's, a, it's the right thing to happen in the long run. You know, and to, from today's perspective, um, he did something which is amazing. Yeah, like the entire EU model. It's a based the model of based on collaboration. If anybody would have explained, as an example, certain countries like Germany, how much they will pay for the majority of the EU funding, um, probably some people in Germany would have not found that too funny at that time. Today, mm -hmm. they see why it is a great model. Yeah, yeah. but uh, if you are a politician and 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 sometimes you have to do things to make sure you stay in power, which is a conflict. So, but uh, let's go to the, the pragmatic examples. Um, I have mm -hmm. during my lifetime seen, um, as an example, Indonesia creating a nationwide mobile phone license was clever. Yeah, so that was clever. Other countries like India created city licenses, which created, which was not as, mm. as, as a fast process. Countries like Malta, yeah. which were open or listened in the late 1990s to the, op the opportunity to create a remote business industry. Yeah, so an industry where the customers never show up, they never physically come to Malta, but they create an entire <laughs> industry sector, they create an yeah. entire industry sector for businesses which run from Malta, operates from Malta, 
uh, which only need fiber optics and a cool place for the teams to actually run this if they are if they want to be physically together, which happens in Malta. But nevertheless, they serve millions of customers who never physically ever come to Malta. And I remember those dialogues from the 1990s in Malta and people said, what is that? So it was difficult for them to put mm -hmm. their arms around it, but they were still willing to move into that direction. They created not only the fiber optic connections, they created the legal and fiscal framework. And you know, did all of them understand the potential? Probably not. Were some of them willing to do it? Yes. Has it served the country in an amazing way? I believe yes. Yeah, so the economical growth which Malta has in the internationalization, now nearly one third of all babies born in Malta are actually international babies. So, and yes, we're not talking about millions, we're talking about a few hundred thousand international people who move to Malta, who work from Malta, and who manage a huge piece of these international remote businesses. And a whole bunch of Maltese then joined those opportunities or even created them themselves. Yeah, a company called Hotjar, founded mm -hmm. by David Damanin, was there fully remote and again, leading the path. So those things uh, would have not happened if there would have not been a remote business industry before. Estonia did something coming from nowhere, having no legacy systems and coming up with creative models. It's clever. So Albania mm -hmm. is doing something really smart uh, by creating a Tirana a capital, planting what 50,000 bushes and trees, creating bicycle lanes which have trees on both sides. You can cycle in the shade. How smart is that? It's a Roman model was introduced thousands of years mm -hmm. ago when they actually create the first roads with, with where the armies could march in the shade. It's clever in the climate zone but albania albania has created a few things which are amazing yeah i was positively shocked uh, by the uh, leadership in a positive sense and and by the mm. um pass and the international outlook mm. and so it's cool yeah if, if if you create models where you just arrive and you get a stamp in your passport welcome for 365 days you can work you can explore and have a good time as uh, this is the best visa model <laughs> Yeah, because you invite people to just actually explore and if they fall in love with it, they will set up something. And so yeah. you see this in Albania and, and especially, especially in Tirana, you see this in Tbilisi, Georgia, clever visa mm -hmm. model yeah. on arrival, 365 days for more than 100 nationalities. That's the best model. Yeah, you attract yeah. interesting people who want to create something and want to explore the neighborhood. And that's where the power comes from. So yeah, you have examples yeah. like this, but it really depends. Like, if you look at Albania, um, the leadership of this um, prime minister who was the, the uh, mayor of uh, Tirana before, exceptional guy, yeah, with an artist mm. background, with appreciation of colors. He does, he has been, and he still does many things which are, from an outside perspective, common sense. Yeah, but uh, sadly, in, in uh, many political circles, common sense is uh, not so common. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I, one thing I got to say about you is that is you're always so, like you said, I, IOT. People need to know what that is. Like you always speak with a lot of uh, just, maybe some people think it's blunt or just direct to the point, but I want to uh, take a moment to for you to explain why you are this way. And you have a principle called IOT, which you just kind of went through a little bit with that exercise. What is IOT and why is it important? If you state what you feel, uh, you'll always remember what you said. So um, if you state what you feel, you will always remember what you said. So it is very simple. Um, I believe if you state the facts which come up 
and which the universe puts into your head and your heart, it's so much easier to remember stuff. So integrity, openness and transparency are beautiful factors which are my lifetime of having been exposed to, to digital mobile communication enables you. So uh, you can show that you always kind of pay your bills and um, you can show where you have been. So it's very transparent. So instead of being afraid of it, you can embrace it. And I believe if the world is uh, IoT based or if people have the option to share and be open and transparent, then you don't pay for all the crooks. Yeah, so, and uh, I believe that if more people are willing to do it in a, in a conscious manner, then uh, things become significantly more affordable. Yeah, and uh, second, it's more fun for people who want to be like that. Yeah, people who decide mm -hmm. to not do it, that's okay too. But then you know that you take conscious choice to deal with them or you don't. So, mm -hmm. as an example, um, ever for a long time in my life, I drive and I enjoy driving slowly because I love to see. And uh, Mm -hmm. That is one attitude. But you know what? If I'm happy to share the driver information, then insurances appreciate that I don't break the speed limit. And you know what? That I'm a civilized driver and um, I don't crash into too many cars or other people. So whoever is happy to share that driving attitude by putting a device into the car, the insurance companies will come up with a tariff, which says, great, fantastic. So and whoever doesn't want to share the data, it's okay too. Yeah, they just get a different tariff. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that is, um, this applies for visas, it applies for travel, this applies for renting a place. Yeah, so I remember a few years ago, I through through um, Craigslist in America was popular at that time. I found a place because I needed a place for two months in Berlin. I found it from a Canadian guy and then we became friends over the time. But he said, Andreas, when you are staying at this place, I always have to come by and stay in one of the rooms because I know the place is in better shape yeah. uh, than yeah. any time else. So I know it's nice. It's nice to have flowers around. It's clean. The fridge is full. And, you know, have a good time. <laughs> and so having that kind of transparency and saying, you know what, people who rent a place to me, if I decide to rent one, um, have that kind of insight. It's a powerful feature. So if you take that perspective uh, from a guy called Paul, who said, Andreas, when you're there, it's good. I know that the light bulbs, which don't work, are actually replaced. Yeah, you don't make fuss about it. You just do it. Um, that's cool. Yeah, so I love to have you in the place because it's a good experience for me and uh, it works. So that is IoT based. And um, if you can share those experiences, it's powerful and it's more fun for everybody. Yeah, you like to, to yeah. have people coming to your restaurant if you know they act in a civilized manner. Yeah, so when I go with my kids to a restaurant, I make sure they take their shoes off because I know they stand on, the, uh, on their chair at a certain point. Yeah, and so it's just the way <laughs> I... It, but it's, it's a principal thing. Or if they sit in somebody's car, I take their shoes off and put them in the trunk. No, they don't have to take their <laughs> shoes off. I say, don't know, I have a principal. If they go in the car, it's so much easier and they don't have different models. Yeah, just take your shoes off. Then if you decide to put your feet up, you know, it's not a big deal. Yeah, but then I don't have to That's go through the monitoring model um, mm. Why should I? As a little yeah. bathroom, if you use a bathroom, leave it cleaner than you found it. It's so simple. Yeah. 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 So it, it starts with the basics, but it makes more fun, or it is more fun, and you know whom you are dealing with. And yeah. sadly yeah. enough, and sadly enough, uh, we don't have integrity classes in in mandatory schooling. Yeah, we don't have ethics. Mm, they're starting now with ethics, but uh, to to, I believe that it should be part of any primary or secondary school. Um, curriculum that people have a clear understanding if you don't have integrity, nothing else matters. Mm. 
That's that's powerful. If you don't have integrity, nothing else matters. Um, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think most of the issues that we see, even in even in the nomadic movement and the the governments and digital nomad visas, relates to uh -huh. to this exactly. So here's here's the the boiling point for the day. I want you to rate the IoT of the uh, uh, institutions or the digital nomad institutions, the government and uh, uh, policies around the world regarding this uh, industry. If you were to give it between, let's just say zero to 10, 10 being IoT perfect, they have integrity, openness and transparency, um, and they're completely open to actually making an impact positively, that's a 10. Zero is full corruption, terrible practices, illegal activities. How would you rate the IoT of the current structure of the digital nomad movement in terms of the governments and the um, institutions that are setting these laws? What would you say between zero to 10 is your rating uh, and why? I think we have to go a level lower in this. So, because um, the movement is in, in several cases not yet understood. So people consider mm. this as an extension of the tourism sector. And the tourism mm. sector is people uh, who live in a, a concrete box model and who get, depending on the country where they come from, they get an allowance of 30 days to eight days annual vacation yeah. where they believe they should recharge where the most of them actually stressed out, hang out on the beach. So um, these mm. are people living a lifestyle where they believe they live a lifestyle they, they want to escape from and they call it vacation. So, and if you are now yeah. in a country and you are the minister for tourism and you want to get them staying for four weeks longer, yeah, so this is the attitude you, you take. So that means you have somebody who's in the business of mobility, but probably um, giving people walking sticks when actually we are talking about a movement which is more on a Formula One level. So um, they have not understood. Yeah. So uh, judging them for what they have not understood, I find difficult. Mm. So um, the sad thing is in some, in some countries, in, even the ones I was involved in, uh, the good ideas behind it were hijacked by people because they wanted to do something quickly and they, they went into walking sticks where they didn't understand the Formula One potential. Mm. So mm. as an example, in, in uh, Albania, I've seen now people grasp, some people in the leadership grasp the full potential. I've seen it even in a place as small as Kosovo, some people on the leadership level see the potential of wow. So we could be a remote work heaven for people. How could we do this? So what are the details? So they're not even looking, they, they do not put this anywhere to, into, into the tourism box of people who want to escape yeah. from their, their concrete box life for maybe 30 <laughs> days per year. And so it's a, it's a very yeah. different angle. So um, if you want to boost uh, the train system, yeah, and want to build a faster train, that does not mean you understand airlines or planes. So, and look at the all, all guys who are, who are building and running railways. None of them understood and invested into aviation. They didn't, they didn't get it. Mm. So, and that's the same mm. with the current tourism sector that some of them are in the railway business and they don't understand mm. what we are talking about is even better than aviation. So if mm. you looked at those comparisons, yeah, or if you look at the telecom world, people uh, like Deutsche Telekom didn't understand WhatsApp. This is why they didn't create it. Yeah. Now look at Deutsche wow. Bank. Why didn't why did they not create Revolut? Or why did they not right. do any of these really things which create yeah. a customer-centric experience, which is second to none? They don't. Mm. 
Yeah. yeah. So ultimately, uh, judging them from that perspective is difficult. But you can see people who are more inclined, yeah, and who have mm. different attitudes towards international people. And this is what you can see in countries like uh, Georgia, and what you can see in countries yeah. like Albania. They do not take tourism as for granted because, as an example, Albania is new. If you look at the history, they don't have 60, 70 years of uh, tourism abuse to yeah. their beaches and to their population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they don't have that because they didn't have it. So luckily, they are mm -hmm. in a position that they have not had, they have not used or people on the be on the coast are not addicted to this three months of tourism influx. <laughs> yeah, it's different. Right. And you see the same right. in Turkey. So they're more open towards certain things. We'll see how it unfolds in practice. But uh, the the movement of empowered people who want to create a life which allows them to flourish and to, to uh, grow as families, as cultures, as communities, wherever fiber optic cables work, they have nothing or they have only this, this very slight overlap with the tourism model where people escape from their day-to-day -day lifestyles up to 30 days per year. Hmm. Wow. Tiny, is it, yeah, is a, tiny, is a tiny overlap only. The, the opportunity yeah. and the potential is so much bigger. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think um, th there's a difference between some governments who are realizing that this is it for the long run. Like you said, like yes. if you were going to create a WhatsApp rather, you know, back then, it wasn't going to work then. It would take years to to catch up and to actually create this cons consumer customer centric model. And so mm -hmm. I think in a way, I'm just being real. I've worked with some I'm working with the Indonesian um, government now and in, 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 in a, a region called Sulawesi. What I realized from what you just said is there are some people out there that get that get it, and I think um, yes. it, those that get it will benefit long term. I believe yes. now this this uh, small town um, in Sulawesi called in Sulawesi region called Bitum mm -hmm. can actually over overlook or overcome other regions, not necessarily in terms of sheer volume, like in, economically, like compared to Bali, because it, Bali in that case it is the the how do I put it? The fast tourism model, it may never yes. change because it's just easy money. The, the human greed, the people who aren't doing the IOT, they function so well in that system. I believe a lot of majority will never leave. I think places like Bitung, like you said, places, uh, especially in Europe, in these countries uh, around Central Europe that aren't, quote, as developed, have the biggest chance to turn this thing around and to innovate um, and, and invigorate their economies um, just by following what you call the simple the simple IoT model and being welcoming and uh, it's it's crazy how doing such simple things can bring such uh, big results and change and like you said it's yeah. still yet to be discovered and whether think these things will work but I believe in those in this model far more than the hype tourism model and i think uh it's an exciting uh time ahead to see these different uh um, communities and cities and leaders that are actually going to try to do this right um and you mentioned back in the olden days you know uh, uh people trading between borders i feel like this is the time that we're going back to that and we have a chance to go back to that we're not trading cows or you know uh tr you know uh, 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 fruits and vegetables mm -hmm. but we're trading knowledge 
And I think that's the most powerful part about uh, this, this human movement, being able to transform, being able to trade knowledge and understand ourselves more. Um, I think it's a, it's a very, very uh, big opportunity. And so, but I want to move now into the family uh, section of, of, the, of the podcast. And I, I would love to learn from you because we're contrasting this fast tourism put your kids in, in, in school in, in basically jail, uh, the sort of the American industrial model or industrial complex. And then we're looking at also people who have chosen to leave that and travel the world. I would love for you to share with us the model that you use, you know, with your family and your children. And, you know, I would love people to learn about how this is possible. What is it? How do you educate your children while you're traveling the world? How do you decide what countries to go to? What is the model around which you live for, uh, you know, yourself, your family and your kids? Because I think it's very different than some people who may be listening and watching this than people who take their kids to school. You know, I, I believe a couple of your kids have never been to a traditional brick and mortar school, right? So. Why are you choosing to do that? What is the model that you're using? Because I think when people see your model, they may be interested in seeing that it actually works or what are the things that are favorable about it? What are not? Um, I just would love you to break down how you, you move around as a nomadic uh, freedom centered uh, man and family man and, and family in general. Um, we have a base. So and our main base is Vansko, Bulgaria. So, and then we have a base in Malta too, which we had since 1995. So I believe if you have a family, you always need a base somewhere and mm -hmm. uh, that's crucial. But if you look at education, um, there are brands out there. If you look at, we are world schoolers as an example. So we are world schoolers, Laini Liberti, and she had a great uh, TED speech with her son, which is now a few years ago, a TED speech from Amsterdam. Um, so they've been doing it for a long, long, long time in a focused, concentrated manner. Um, education is the single most impactful uh, vertical on the planet where we actually create the software or the operating system um, which humans live by or which uh, people use. So if we have created, um, if you look at Sir Ken Robinson's definition, a factory model, uh, which has been around now for something like 100, 100 plus years, where we cluster people by age, put them into a factory process and believes they should learn something which we predetermine. Uh, and we tell them they have to be excited on a Tuesday morning at 8.15 to do <laughs> everything about history in line with whoever defines the curriculum. Um, and I can see why that's a conflict because I don't work like that. I haven't seen a single human who works like that. So um, if you go to the roots, uh, there are certain seasons in the year. And during the seasons, things happen or they don't happen. This is what nature and this is how the planet operates. Um, we as humans are very similar. So on certain days, we love to learn certain things which we are really excited about. So fundamentally, kids love to learn. Fundamentally, if we if we spend time with them and we treat them as equal humans and answer their questions and actually make it a focus, then uh, they learn fast, they learn 365 days per year, and they remember. You know yourself, if you want to figure things out, like getting the microphone working for this podcast or getting the, micro, the right microphone for the podcast, you will not stop until it works. And so that's the same with, with all humans of all ages. 
being two years old, six years old, eight years old, 10, 12, 14, 15, 16, 20, I did the same thing. I, I never went to a school for digital mobile communication, but I love mm. learning about it. And this has been happening yeah. now for something like 35 plus years. So mm. learning is amazing. Yeah. Schooling um, is great too if it's, if it's open source. If you tell people mm. that they have to learn something which they didn't come up yeah. with, and they have to learn it within a limitation which you predetermine, then with a lot of people you create directly opposition. Yeah, if you tell most people who still have some uh, testosterone and masculine energy left, which sadly enough, with a lot of boys, we try to take it out of them. Um, mm. So then for them to sit still all day is kind of a nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. the, most, the most CEOs I know, uh, um, love to walk around, meet clients, meet uh, industry partners. What CEOs? Their... CEOs, anybody, any C, C management people, leaders, okay. <coughs> they don't mm, sit C still all day. Yeah. <coughs> they don't sit still all day. So the idea of sitting yeah. somewhere and having somebody telling you in a, in a <laughs> confrontational style that, by the way, this right. is the history and this is right and this is wrong. And um, yeah, it, it led to me leave. I left school early because I always came up with questions, which and sometimes it annoyed <laughs> the teachers. It annoyed the teachers so yeah. much um, that they said, "You're disturbing the flow of the class. Please leave the room." And I left the room, and um, but I love to figure things out. And a lot of humans operate yeah. like this, and we're all born hugely curious. Yeah. So yeah. as Ken Robinson said, 98% were tested and as at a genius level when it comes to problem solving. And that is systematically destroyed to this factory trial, which we had for 100 plus years, which was called factory schooling. And that schooling didn't yeah. work too well. We don't teach relevant things. Yeah, we don't teach yeah. how to manage your finances in life. We don't teach anything about legal systems. We don't teach anything about parenting, which is the most important thing in life. If you look at the future mm -hmm. of civilization, so parenting is not at any school. No secondary class, no yeah. secondary school teaches parenting, and parenting depend uh, mm. determines the quality of future leadership. So think about yep. it. You get a driver's license to drive a car, but you don't get a parenting license. <laughs> Yeah, you don't get a it's partnership good. license. This is why we have a failure rate of what Luxembourg is close to 90% divorce rates. So, um, you know what? Yeah, why don't we get a driver's license to, for relationships? So, <laughs> so I, love, I love to learn. I love education. Yeah, I just believe yeah. that the factory model is expired and it's not only, you know, forget my opinion. Look at, look at experts who have been communicating, who have been communicating it for a long time. Luckily yeah. now through AI, through AI, the whole repetitive model of learning and remembering things you're not interested in. It's so much faster to ask uh, Google <laughs> or any AI-based device. Right. Yeah, I had this discussion with my school principal. I said, you know what? I have a team in my class. And if she remembers things so much better than me, why shouldn't I ask, why shouldn't I ask her? Yeah, so that's no, good. You, can't. I said, yeah. you know what? But she likes me. I like to ask her. Yeah. We have good conversations. So why should I not ask her? No, you can't do this. I said, you know what? Why should I use my limited brain to remember things I'm right. interested in? And so I write, right. put it on a piece of paper and take it to the test. No, that's not okay either. I said, so I can't take notes. I cannot collaborate. So that's not my style. Yeah. Yeah, so I like to That's... take notes, so I don't have to remember everything. And so, and I love yeah. to check things. I love to have documentation and I love to collaborate. So I always know, you know what? There's not a single subject, I believe. I do not know somebody who knows much more than I will ever do. So why should I, yeah. if I need information, not call that guy? 
Yeah, this was pre-AI. Yeah, so why would I not be able to brainstorm with somebody about <laughs> something they are really, really, really focused about so, or, or passionate about? Right. So I always would call people who know more than I do. And they exist yeah. on any single subject I ever touched. Yeah, I love that. That that's that's what you call innovation. I'm sure back then they thought Andreas was a, a rebel without a cause, but it turns out you have a cause, which is to actually help advanced uh, people and humans. And I think this model where you it's IoT sharing, open, transparent, and and moving things forward is the most powerful thing that we have. Education and making sure everybody and not education as your just to make a distinction where you memorize things and if you get it wrong you're stupid or you're not smart but education in terms of democratizing and learning together and allowing people to take in information and let them interpret it because that's how they grow and i think you sent me a video you posted a video of your your daughter and you were just talking to her and i'm like how is she how old is she now your daughter Maya. Ten. Ten, ten, but ten. ten, but our our au pair at the time actually recorded it. I didn't know. And she had oh, fun okay. sitting, in the, sitting in the back on the car of the car and she recorded right. it. But you know what? It is so simple. And this was the communication. She was seven at the time. But um, yeah, I believe treating them as equals and having adult mm -hmm. dialogues with them. And then adult is maybe wrong, the wrong terminology, but equal. So equal on equal. a human level. Yeah, so yeah. looking into their eyes, not talking physically, even going sitting down so that you're on an eye level with them is hugely important. Yeah. And then answering yeah. their questions in the uh, most authentic manner is super powerful. And then taking them to meetings and making sure they can listen in is powerful too. Yeah, and so yeah. it it's, it's yeah. works exceptionally well. I've seen this in different parts of the world with many world schoolers, and there are probably more than half a million now on the planet. And so, yes. The kids yeah. who learn what they want to learn, when they want to learn it, and you provide them with tutors, material, answers. Yeah, that's a powerful mm -hmm. thing. And yes, you need tutors and you need mentors. And there are ample, mm -hmm. ample people who dropped out of international school, teachers, international yeah. school, professors, anybody. They, they left the system by now and they are willing to mentor children and tutor children on specific subjects so is there if there's an expert on a subject yes call him set up an, a 90-day program so your daughter or your son can learn anything from those people on that specific subject powerful yeah yeah so as an example I just as an example when we when we were in kosovo uh maya fell in love with uh, with an ai workshop so and ever since oh, really? she has now yeah <laughs> and ever since she she convinced that tutor of this ai or the, the person who leads the ai workshop now to be her tutor on AI, and she has wow. AI sessions, AI sessions together with some other world schooling kiddos, and they love it. And so, just to have that person checking in on the progress and moderating it, um, but you can yeah. see that uh, Professor Zugata Mitra, he's uh, he organized a self-organized learning environment over ten years ago. So he just mm -hmm. provided kids with internet access, and he created classes mm -hmm. or rooms where minimum three of them are together, and then just asking them mm -hmm. questions and having them themselves find all the answers and argue about it was wow. highly effective and created results which were comparable to private schools in the UK. So mm, what I'm trying there to say, go. kids, if you give them access and information, yeah, they, they make things happen which we don't think is possible because our, our limitation as parents is we can only see what we can see. We can yeah. only see what we can see. 
So, mm. uh, and the most parents, yeah. as I said, never went through parenting class. They never looked <laughs> into what are, what is behind their perceived boundaries of education. So yeah. they, they rather pass on the responsibility to a formal schooling process, which has been created in the last hundred plus years, what I call factory schooling, which usually failed, which doesn't prepare people to, yeah. for the real issues in life. Yeah. And um, mm -hmm. this is why we have uh, now, I think they, they, they published last week a number where they checked the Fortune 100 companies in the, U in the US and they checked, they wanted to figure out which Ivy League university they came from and they figured out the majority of them uh, didn't, didn't even finish college. Yeah, <laughs> they so, didn't even go to college. Um, yeah. So, yeah, um, exactly. but you see, this, you see the same with this, the, the knowledge-based or, or leading tech companies in the world. They are now recruiting people who have not formally yeah. finished something, but they show a skill set, which is second to none. Mm. And this skill set is mostly self-educated. Yeah. Look at Elon Musk. Yeah. Uh, for what for, for the most things he's doing, he doesn't have a degree. He just has a yeah. he just has the the unstoppable desire to figure it out and to make it happen. Yeah. Wow. I, I had I had those desires. I said I you know with the German reunification, the wall came down. I said, Wow, finally yeah. something interesting happens in Germany. I said, Wow. <laughs> I was always thinking about I want to have during my lifetime something interesting happening. And then I remember the radio on the way to the Sheesh. office in the morning. Were, um, were at a meeting. So, and then the wall came down. I said, wow, finally something interesting. And then we went to workshops for Chamber of Commerces in East Germany. And they invited mm. us to teach people how to start a business. And I, I saw wow. how, key, how keen some people were there to embrace change and know-how transfer. Mm. And that was really fascinating to see people logically double my age, but who wanted to make things happen. I loved it. So this was mm. my kind of, uh, if this works in East Germany, it can work anywhere. Yeah, especially under those political circumstances. That gives me a lot of hope, Andreas, and, and I'm super thankful to have you on the podcast. I'm sure we'll be, as some people know, we'll be doing some things in the future together, hopefully. And uh, I, I want you to, before we go, to share with people the hope and, and what is it practically, not just making some tra-la-la, fun little uh, statements. Well, what are you doing with your initiative with Manabu Movement and Tirana and with actually educating uh, children and teenagers so we can make an, uh, an, an improvement and, and, and have a chance to really impact the world? Tell us a little bit about that before we go. What you're actually doing to put it into practicality because a lot of people talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. So I want to know what you're doing um, right now and uh, how people can get involved with that to support what you're working on. Um, my way of raising my children and my own experiences from my teenage years and before um, showed me that being empowered to, to, as an example, make some, make your own money helps. So Maya, who's now yeah. age 10, raised the money by selling flowers and other things to make sure that she was able to provide the 50%, which I said, I buy you toys, but only if you make the other 50% yourself. So it's a great <laughs> idea, great idea. I give you half the money, you make the other 50% yourself. <laughs> and she has been doing it for many, many years. So and it was the same attitude wow. when we were in Croatia. She saw a problem, spoke to some of her friends, and then uh, discussed it with Tihana, who is a Croatian woman who lives in Switzerland. And they came up with starting the Manabu movement. And um, this wow. were specific things where the kids love to do something. And then if the kids love to do something, then, I'm, then I feel my calling to support it. So Maya felt the situation in Tirana, where we were last year invited um, to, to Tirana, 
and we went and then she heard about the BBC headlines that uh, teenagers from Albania are uh, illegally moving to the UK on plastic boats mm. and then uh, getting involved in criminal gangs and becoming drug couriers and etc etc so she said papa why mm. don't why don't we teach the people in Tirana the teenagers how to make money from their mobile phone or from their iPad wow. so they can they can stay yeah and um, mm. they don't have to stay they don't have to stay but where I'm coming from is if they make a few hundred euros per month they yeah. probably are pretty competitive in that environment and uh, they have some kind of a not only a mental but even a physical level of independence as soon as they have the mm. tools to do that and so this led us to reach out to some really competent people like Hannah Dixon mm. who already has trained 27,000 VAs and talk to her and say mm. you know what would you please consider doing it with teenagers and um, mm. we managed to overcome all the bottlenecks in the process I found with two more Tirana a local partner who was able to provide their facilities and pick the first 12 um, students to go through the program and uh, it's possible as uh, as Hannah has been doing with 27,000 VAs before for them to be freelancing uh, VAs mm -hmm. virtual assistants and make money so and yeah. um, this this program is now running in Tirana we were in Kosovo where people in Pristina and in Prisran want to now multiply the program uh, in my vision empower teenagers like you find them in the Balkan area they speak multiple languages mm. wow they have an international mm. outlook and they have an attitude where they're really humble and they want to make things happen so that is great yeah. they will not wow. have to leave they can leave but they can stay as well in the neighborhoods where they are because we only yeah. pick neighborhoods where the fiber optics work and you will be surprised how well fiber optics work as an example in Banskul, Bulgaria or how well fiber optics work across Albania or how amazing fiber optics work as an example in Kosovo so and yeah. then I found out that Kosovo has actually the most digital and IT literate teenagers compared to wow. or it's on the Scandinavian level let's put it this way so there's a top 10% mm. European whites in a small place called Kosovo so they have teenagers who all have those mm. skills already so the only thing it's needed is to give them kind of a driver's license with remote working skills. So mm. the objective is to do this because then uh, the objective is to create the first 1,000 teenagers to have those skills because they will invest then some of the money they make into friends, yeah. businesses, friends projects. Yeah? yeah. Then you have kind of a movement very comparable to what I have seen in Indonesia and India and the Philippines when we gave them the first digital mobile phones. When the villages which didn't have phones at one phone yeah you give this phone to let's say a reliable older women who make sure that everybody pays for their phone calls so then you can <laughs> trust the village with having a phone yeah and they make sure they collect the money to make sure they can pay the bill at the end of the month so we address all the issues mm -hmm. by providing them with a mobile phone access and this allows them to call an ambulance this allows them to check the prices for their local crop and so you empower the entire village to be actually mm. in the picture to know what's going on and to call help when needed this was digital mobiles in the 1990s in certain countries which didn't have telecommunication widely available so and now sharing knowledge or providing a driver's license for remote working know-how to teenagers in those countries powerful and these are countries yeah uh, if you look at the bigger picture who have an immigration issue they don't have an immigration issue germany has a huge level of immigration yeah the countries where remote workers and digital nomads are the most welcome is countries who have an emigration issue where people leave 
Yeah. So, and those are the countries who need yeah. the most help in biologic and help is made the wrong world, the wrong terminology, but where know-how transfer is the most, is most welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal. Try, try to argue well, with people in Germany, remote working skills, a little bit difficult. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I rather go yeah. to places where people are more conducive, where more, more open and um, you're more welcome. And they're not used yeah. to, to three months tourism only, but actually places where they love to see glowing and growing teenagers as, as an example, and where they enjoy people to spend three to six months and see kids meeting yeah. at the playground. I had the most beautiful experiences with my kids at some playgrounds, as an example, in Kosovo. And then I checked the background and I said, wow, obvious. This country had such a difficult time and is so international mm. in many ways. And this is why the kids at the playground mm. are all open and say, and curious about who is, who is here today. <laughs> yeah. So where do you come <laughs> from? What's your background? Um, yeah. If you go to playgrounds in Germany, you have bigger playgrounds for dogs than for kids. Yeah. Because <laughs> okay. having kids is yeah. not too popular these days. Yeah. Interesting. That's a, that's a good place to, uh, to, to kind of leave off. And we, I know we could talk for five hours uh, and I'm sure people enjoy it, but I think the best way is to continue this conversation, continue to empower people. And uh, I'm sure that people are interested where they can find you. Where's the best place to continue to learn from you, to participate, to engage? Where's the best place to, to find you, Andreas? And uh, how can people connect with you if they're interested in some of the things you've said today? Um, Bansko, Bulgaria is a good start. So that's a blueprint okay. for the remote work movement. So Bansko, Bulgaria, that's the reason why we spend significant time here and call it a home base. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a good, good starting point. Uh, otherwise, I'm easily to be reached through all digital means of communication since a long, 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 long time. I don't change my phone numbers. Um, no, but assume if you just use any of the conventional things which are around, being it's Instagram or the world uh, or the Facebooks or the LinkedIn's, uh, they all work well and I'm easy to find and identify. Um, mm. That's probably the answer. And I enjoy dialogues with you because you have this uh, exceptional energy and, and international outlook based on your own assignments this lifetime. So uh, that's one of the <laughs> great features why it hasn't been boring yet. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think it'll ever be boring for us, and I'm excited for what the future holds, and uh, and and we'll see you on the next uh, episode of Nomad Cloud, or perhaps some fun things in the future, bringing together nomadic families. We won't say too much yet, but uh, I'm excited to in the future be doing some things that brings this to the surface to allow more people to access what we have been privileged and blessed have a chance to to live on a daily basis so much love to yourself and the and the kids and the family and uh we'll see you in another episode of nomad cloud thanks for being on andreas appreciate you big hack big hack to you and Theo. ciao thank you so much bye bye that's and uh...